The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our study uh, continues in Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. This is a church that he founded in his first missionary journey. And you can read about the experience that Paul had with this church in Acts chapter 17. Paul was under orders from the Holy Spirit who sent him to Macedonia after he diverted him from Paul's previous plans, there was a man that appeared to Paul in the night. And this was a vision that was given him by the Holy Spirit who told him there were people in Macedonia that needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul would go there and preach the word. People would be saved and churches would be established. And so Paul established a thriving church in the city of Thessalonica after just a a few weeks of preaching in that place. Now you can imagine as Paul went there that the news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead, that sounded like an, an outlandish assertion. Who could believe such things? When he taught the commandments and how they were to live by a different morality, that was countercultural to those people. And when he told these pagans that there is only one true and living God That was a totally different spirituality. Paul had no ability to convince people that the message of Christ was true. That's not within man's ability to do. There's no preacher that can open up a person's heart to help them to understand truth. But that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He opens up the dead heart to receive the word of God. Even as we read that what happened to Lydia in Philippi, that the Lord opened her heart so that she received the word that was spoken by Paul. And so here in Thessalonica, Paul witnessed the regeneration of these people that turned from their idols to worship Jehovah God. They were saved from their sins. And the first part of this letter is about how they had been delivered from the wrath of God. But there was another amazing part of Paul's message to the church. It was the promise that the risen Christ that he preached, the crucified and risen Christ that he preached, would one day return to this earth. And so he taught them this New Testament truth of the gospel. But as he did, he used the Old Testament scriptures to do it. The Old Testament is all that he had to preach. And in the Old Testament, we find that the second coming of Christ is a major theme of the Old Testament prophets. And if Paul was to teach the church the word of God, then he must speak about these things. This very important part that Christ is going to return. And in chapter 5, in verse number 2, he used Old Testament terms to describe Christ's return. In verse number 2, he says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And so he called the timing of Christ's return the day of the Lord. That is common Old Testament terminology, that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And the Bible also describes that the time that Jesus will come back will be a great and terrible day. Now our study has taken us through the catastrophic judgments that will happen in that time. 
And now having been through in these past weeks a synopsis of seven years of tribulation, now we're brought to the aftermath in which the world is ready for the glorious kingdom of Christ on this earth. Now our church is blessed to have many faithful members who attend regularly, and so most of you have been with us through the entire sermon series, but but it occurs to me there are some of you that have not been here, you've not heard everything that we've discussed, and so you might not be familiar with this subject. But we have gone from a future of cataclysmic events, such as earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, famine, horrible bloodshed and world wars, And we've come to the kingdom of perfect peace, a kingdom with a a world with a perfect environment, a world in which there is no disease, a world with no pollution. It's a world where animals and people peacefully coexist, and also a world where the livelihood, the lifespans uh, of people will reach and go beyond 100 years. So this is the the kingdom of Christ. It's a kingdom that lasts for 10 centuries. It is 1,000 years of a blessed utopia. It's a golden age like the world has never experienced. Not since God created Adam and Eve and put them into the Garden of Eden has anything nearly approached what, what will be seen in the millennial kingdom. Habakkuk, the prophet, wrote, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And Habakkuk's prophecy is a fair summary of this kingdom of Christ. And that's part of Paul's teaching to the Thessalonian church. Now, in the last message, which was a few weeks ago, uh, we ended that discussion in part number two of our outline. I want to take us up from that point where we were discussing the reigning members of the kingdom. And we talked about how there are four separate groups that will reign with Christ in this kingdom, and they are promised that they will sit on thrones of government. Now, we understand that Christ is the ruler of all, but he will designate responsibilities to others. The king's throne is in the capital city of of, uh, Jerusalem, But scattered throughout the world, there are other thrones of government. These are places where the saints of God will sit to exercise judgment and authority as they are the ambassadors of the king. Now, we talked about these four groups that uh, it begins with those that believed in the Old Testament times. Those who believed before the coming of Jesus into the world. The Old Testament saints, the prophets, the believers of that time, they will rule in this kingdom with Christ. And then we talked about how the apostles, the ones that were chosen by Christ to be the foundation of the church, they will also rule in this kingdom. And then there is the church. There, there's the church that Paul started, the one that he's writing to here, the Thessalonian church, and believers like you and me today that are in the true New Testament church. We will also rule with Christ in his kingdom. Now I know that uh, here in, in California... Uh, Many times we feel oppressed, we feel ostracized by a world that does not believe. But the Bible teaches that one day we shall be exalted and we will help Christ to reign over this world. And then finally there was a fourth group. Uh, During the tribulation, the Antichrist will persecute and kill believers. But these believers will not give up their faith. 
They will stand in there. They will still believe. They will die for their faith. And the Lord says that they will be rewarded. When Christ comes, God is going to give them a place to rule in the kingdom. And so those four groups, that is the full complement of the ruling class. All the faithful of all the ages are promised that they will be a part of the Lord's glorious kingdom. Now I'd like to talk to you a little bit more uh, about the kingdom uh, and about the government of this kingdom. This kingdom is a theocratic government. Theocratic. That is, it is a theocracy, which simply means that it is a government that is directed by divine guidance. And to be more precise in describing it, it is a theocratic monarchy where all power and authority is vested in the king. So there's no one who, who acts without his express divine authority. This government is not a democracy. Although Christ invests his ambassadors with authority, these are not those who have been chosen by the popular demand of the people. These are those who are chosen by Christ before the foundation of the world. So there's no one that votes in this kingdom. The will of the people does not matter, except that that will corresponds with the will of God. And so the best government that can be found is a government that's ruled by an omniscient, benevolent, merciful, righteous, and gracious king. And those are descriptions of Jesus Christ. He is all of that and he's so much more. He is perfect. And so he rules in perfect righteousness. There is no injustice. There is no inequity in his kingdom. Well, let me give you some thoughts about the kingdom. First of all is the global extent. How much of the world will Christ rule? And the answer is he will rule every square inch of this world. Now, someone might ask, well, isn't that true now? I mean, doesn't... Christ rule the entire world now. And we would have to say, of course, in a spiritual sense, he does. There is a spiritual kingdom of Christ that it's coextensive over the entire world. Uh, there's nothing that happens in this world today that's outside of God's sovereign control. And yet, in this world today, God has chosen that evil shall exist. God has chosen that that evil will happen, that there are people that are evil, and there is no evil that happens without God's divine permission. God's not the author of evil, but what God can do and does do in this day and age is that he turns evil to our good. He can take evil and he can make it work out for our good. Seems strange, but God is able to do that. We also find the Word of God teaches that the devil himself is subject to God. You can see that in the New Testament. As Christ had the power to cast out demons. And you remember the story of the maniac of Gadara who had in him more than a thousand, a legion of demons. And yet at the command of Christ, every one of them came out. And Jesus commanded them to go out and enter into a herd of swine. Now in the present world, God allows Satan and his demons to do their dirty work. Satan is known today as the God of this world. He is the prince and power of the air, as Scripture describes. But in the millennial kingdom, Christ will demonstrate his power over Satan by imprisoning him. Satan will imprison, or God rather, will imprison Satan and his demons in the abyss for the entire duration of the kingdom. So in that time, Christ will crush evil. He will restrain evil. 
And although there are millions of unbelievers that transition into the kingdom, and there are millions and perhaps even billions more that are born into the inevitable depravity of of Adam's fall, yet all of these people are not free to do as they please. Now, sinners will defy God now, but they will not then. In the golden age, the spiritual reign of Christ over this earth becomes a physical reign. And as the spiritual kingdom exists in the whole earth today, so then the physical kingdom will exist in the entire earth and Christ will rule it all. The prophecy of Isaiah 9 says that the government shall be on the shoulders of Christ and he will sit on the throne of David. And so we might ask, does that mean that Christ will be the ruler of Israel only? And the answer to it is found in Zechariah 14 verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Revelation 19 says that he will smite the nations with a rod of iron. In Psalm 72 we read, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. In verse 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. And in verse 17, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. So it is a global kingdom where Christ will rule all nations. And yet at the same time, the scriptures show us that this kingdom will be Jewish in nature. The kingdom was promised to Israel. At Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel told Mary, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now today, Israel is in unbelief. The scripture says that they will remain in unbelief. Through this entire church age, for the most part, Israel will not be saved. But the Bible says that's going to change before the millennium. God is going to turn the Jews to the truth and so they will return to the throne of David and they'll recognize the Christ that they crucified. A very important scripture for you to know and understand is Isaiah chapter 53 and we tend not to recognize that Isaiah 53 is actually a millennial chapter in which Israel looks back on the Christ that they crucified and now they come to this one who has been declared their Messiah. So they look to the Messiah that they crucified. Romans 11 says that God has not cast Israel away. Now it's true today and with some people in their millennial positions, they do believe that Christ has ended his relationship with Israel. That Israel is no more the favored nation of God. They have no status with God. And yet if that's true, then these Old Testament texts that we read are filled with lies and with false hope. There are all these curses that Israel receives for unbelief while they receive nothing for the promise of turning back to God. Yet we find that is what the scriptures say. God always remembers Israel. And so one day he will send his Holy Spirit. He will open up their hearts to the truth and they will return to Jehovah God. They will come to Christ who is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so we read in Romans 11, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, 
and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I shall take away their sins. Now Paul wrote that in the New Testament. Where does it say that God will take away their sins? Where does it say that God will turn them back to Christ? Well, Romans 11, that's New Testament. But Paul is simply speaking here, prophecy that comes out of the Old Testament. Who is to say that Isaiah 59 is not true? This is the place that Paul drew on. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, that is the children, the grandchildren, and on and on, saith the Lord, henceforth and forever. The scripture says that God made a covenant with Israel. And he said that his covenant will never depart from them. He said that he will turn away their transgressions. As Paul says, the deliverer will come out of Zion and turn away their ungodliness. And Isaiah says, the Redeemer shall come to Zion and turn uh, uh, to those that turn from their transgression. And it's all according to this everlasting covenant. Now, if I might be political for just a moment, America's best hope of success is to be on the side of Israel. We are not God's chosen nation. They are. God does not intend to make America great. He intends to make Israel great. The worldwide kingdom will not be America's. It will not belong to any other nation. It will be Israel's kingdom. But even as we hear that, we have to be thankful for this, that God is also the God of the Gentiles. That God saves people from all nations, from all races, from all ethnicities. And though the kingdom belongs to Israel, it's also ruled by every faithful believer in Isaiah's, or Israel's Messiah. Simeon prophesied when he saw the baby Jesus, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now today we see that Israel is a land divided. You read in the papers about conflict in Israel. It goes on all of the time. It dominates our news stories many times. Who is going to control the West Bank? Who, who will control the Golan Heights? Who will have control of the Gaza Strip? Well, all of that's Israel's land. Presently, there is an Islamic mosque that sits on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Jews don't even have control of their most holy site, the place where the Temple of God once stood. And so instead, you find Israel today, the Jews gathering at the Western Wall, and that's just a retaining wall that held up the platform of the Temple Mount where the temple once stood. And there at that wall, they say their prayers. They write them out on little pieces of paper and stuff them in the cracks of the wall. And there they are praying and hoping for the day that the temple will be rebuilt. And the wall, standing in front of that wall, that's all that they have at this present time. But in the book of Ezekiel, the scriptures describe the building of a new temple. There are seven chapters that are dedicated to describing the temple and worship in the millennial kingdom. 
And so we wonder, who is the person who says, no, none of that's true. We're living in the millennium now. This is the millennium the Bible talks about, and yet there isn't a temple. Well, then when will the prophecies of the Bible come true? And who is that person that says, well, Satan is bound now, as the Bible describes him. The, the Satan is bound now when we know very well that evil exists in the world, that the devil is active in the world, the devil is tempting people in the world, the devil is not bound. He's doing just about anything that he wants to do within the limitations that God gives him. And so are these prophecies of the Old Testament, are they false prophecies? Or will there, in fact, come a day when Israel will be restored, when the devil will be bound, and when there will be an actual temple built in Jerusalem? God is going to give back the temple mount to the Jews. A new temple will be constructed. And it's a massive, glorious place that far exceeds the one that Solomon built. Uh, you remember your history of the Old Testament, how the Jews returned from their captivity in Babylon and they built a second temple. And they wept because of that second temple. It didn't have any of the glory of the first temple that Solomon built. They remembered how it paled in comparison. And so the prophet Haggai wrote, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as Nothing. And so they wept at that second temple because it didn't have the gold. It didn't have the splendor. It didn't have the, the, the blessings of God upon it like the one that Solomon built. But when it comes to the millennial temple, the Israelites will not weep over it. They will rejoice over it because it's majestic and because it reflects the glory of the king. And I believe that even Solomon will stand back and applaud this temple that will be built because it far exceeds the one that he built. Make no mistake about this. Christ is going to reign on the throne of David. Israel will be restored. The kingdom will be restored. God will restore his people. That is the global extent of the kingdom. Now next, I'd, I'd like you to see the social expectation in this kingdom. Now Americans are perhaps the most keenly aware in all the history of the world of the social aspects of government. We're very big on social aspects of government. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson began his social experiment that he called the Great Society. And its intent was social equality. Its intent was to end poverty, to end racial injustice. Its intent was to cure inner city problems. Its intent was to get rid of the ghettos. Its intent was to educate and to elevate by pouring money into welfare programs. And so the goal of the great society was to unite America. That's the purpose. But instead, the great society became the great handout. And now, 55 years later, America is still badly divided over the very same lines. There's even talk now of another civil war. All the same problems still exist. And then added on top of all of those problems that we experienced back then is the worst morality that this country has ever seen. Fingers are pointed everywhere at the racial prejudices. Many of those still exist. And then I think there are still others that are manufactured by a too politically correct process. And that's not to say there isn't any prejudice. No, there is prejudice. Because prejudice will never be conquered. Because sin cannot be conquered by evil men. 
Sin cannot be conquered by any man, in fact. That takes the Lord Jesus Christ. No man, even the best of men, has ever done away and conquered sin. And because we're failing socially, this past year there was another socialist who was elected to Congress, and this person has now become the buzz and thought to be the future of the Democratic Party. But I hope that you understand that democratic and socialistic are antonyms. Socialism and wealth redistribution are enemies of democratic freedom. So what has the great society produced? It's produced an influx of socialism. What has it produced? It's produced potheads. It's produced mass murderers. There's mass extermination of the innocent. And now there's even discussion and debate about killing babies that are birthed alive. What's wrong? What's wrong is that a sin-cursed world cannot produce justice. We are incapable of ruling justly. When in fact that is the command to all of God's people. Micah said, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Why can't we do that? Why can't America do this? You know why? Because we have legislated out. Walk humbly with thy God. And you can't walk without God and do justly and love mercy. A godless society disregards those who are made in the image of God. And so this great American experiment that began in 1776 began with leaders that recognized God. And I'm not saying that all of them were saved men because they weren't. But they were men who were influenced not to push God out. And they knew that we must live by His commandments. And in the Declaration of Independence that they signed, they said it's by the divine providence of God that we do what we do. And so when was the beginning of our decline? Well, I think that we can look back to 1964 in the Great Society. Two years before that, in 1962, and then in 1963, the Supreme Court ruled that prayer in our schools was unconstitutional. So how could we possibly imagine that we're going to have a great society and the foundation of this great society will be without God? How can you build a great society without God? And so we banned it. And two generations or the generations later have trampled and continue to trample the blood of the cross. In 1980, the court ruled that the Ten Commandments must be taken out of the schools. And folks, that is the moral law on which all societies must be built. And so today's generation, you talk to the average student who comes out of school, they know nothing about this morality, they know nothing about the commandments, and we're paying the societal price. Everything has gone wrong. Hypocrisy reigns in our country. In 2016, we were forced to choose between the two worst presidential candidates in history, in American history. Honesty and integrity are unknown qualities in our government. Even as I wrote this message uh, some weeks ago, the Democrats, and they're still doing this, they still want to impeach the president, while at the same time, the top leaders in Virginia, who are all Democrats, uh, were under pressure to resign because of racial insensitivity and sexual misconduct. So what I'm telling you is that all the branches of the government, the President, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the, the, the 
legislatures of our states and the governors of our states, who can find a virtuous man or woman in government? Where is there an honest politician? Where is there true social justice? And so you hear all of these out there crying for equality, crying for rights, crying for tolerance, while at the same time the rights of Christians are being squashed. Nobody cares about the rights of God's people. We are told that we must respect immorality. Today there is a great parade taking place in San Francisco, parading immorality. Parading, parading degradation. That's our society. And so it's demanded that what we must do, we must celebrate this, we must respect immorality. When we as Christians, folks, we have the answer to all the problems that America experiences, and yet they will not listen. Why? It's because people will not have Christ rule over them. We will not have this man to rule over us, they say, just as the Jews said, but he shall rule. He will take all authority. There are no other opinions that matter. Sinful opinions do not matter because he doesn't listen to sin. Now, if you'll turn to Isaiah 11, what is justice in the millennial kingdom? Will Christ listen to protest? Will people march against him, holding up their signs and demanding their rights? Well, we see in Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's the descent of Christ from the, for the throne of David. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Listen to what the prophet says. He will not judge after the sight of his eyes. He doesn't reprove after the hearing of his ears. Why? Because he doesn't need to see it. He doesn't need to hear it. He already knows it. He doesn't sit in a courtroom and listen to arguments. He adjudicates by the law that he established and by the law that we banned. His Ten Commandments will rule. And I promise you, they will go back up in every school classroom. People will be judged by his commandments and made to live by them. And that will produce social equality among all people in the kingdom. Compliance with his law is the enforcement of peace. Well, now finally, as we conclude our study of the millennial kingdom, I'd like to speak to you about the spiritual experience in the kingdom. Every Sunday, we meet in this church for worship, and we worship Christ. Our focus is Christ. Our lives are Christ. We hear from his holy word as we are today. And the Holy Spirit uses that word to impress upon us Jesus Christ. We listen to hymns and we say prayers that engage the heart in the worship of Christ. And in one phrase, the spiritual experience of the millennial kingdom will be the worship of Christ. There's only one person that deserves worship. He is Christ. Now, in the millennial kingdom, there is 
one religion. There is only one true religion. That is the worship of Christ. And I might add to this, as I said a moment ago before our scripture reading, that it is Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. He is not Christ as he is seen today as someone who thinks and acts like us. That's who people think Christ is. His opinions are not different from my opinions. His morality is not different from my morality. His truth is not different from my truth. That is not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And so the worship of Christ looks very much different depending on which group that you run with. Who do you worship with? Who do you go with? Where do you go to church? And the worship of Christ can look very different. Roman Catholicism claims that they worship him, but you come here and you don't find any of the trappings of Catholicism. There are no altars in our church. There are no images here. There are no sacraments that we keep. There are others that claim Christ, but you'll not find a tongues movement here. You'll not find fake healing here. You'll not find a prosperity gospel here. And then there are some who are non-denominational and they have their pie-in-the-sky Christ with their entertainment and their rock and roll guitar riffs. Worshiping self is not worshiping God. Now we've never claimed that only Baptists will be in heaven, nor will we ever claim that. But we do claim this, that there will, no one, there will be no one in heaven who doesn't come in the same way that a Baptist comes. There is no one who will be in heaven who doesn't come by grace alone, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And anyone who denies this, denies those things, is not a believer in Christ, is not, does not believe the true Christ. So it doesn't do any good to claim that you know Christ or that you are in Christ if you don't know who he is according to the scriptures. So you must have the Christ that's revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And this is why we say sola scriptura. Only the scriptures are our guidebook and our foundation. And that's what we go by to develop our doctrine. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the church its authority. Now there are many variations of doctrine. But in the millennial kingdom, the understanding of Christ will be one and the same. Those who don't know the scriptures now will listen when the king re-emphasizes every word that he wrote in his scriptures. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away, but not one word of the scriptures will fail. And so this king will do nothing more and nothing less than to enforce the word. The word that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And then all these controversies that we argue about today... Even arguing among ourselves as Baptists, all of our controversies will be resolved. The doctrines of grace will be understood and they will be believed because it's impossible to deny that God is the absolute sovereign, that he cedes nothing to the will of man. And then what better proof of the total inability of man to come to Christ than when in the end, when the end of the millennium is realized... And what is the end of the millennium? Well, it comes to an end with the world that is still in unbelief. And you wonder, how could they not believe Jesus Christ? How can they not trust Him? God's righteous government is right before their eyes, and yet they are still blind to who He is. And what does that prove but the total inability of man? And out of that flows all the other doctrines of grace and necessitates every one of them. And so God's people will think rightly in those days, even though the world will still think wrongly. 
Well, now it remains to be seen what worship in the millennium is and how it differs from our worship today. Today we worship in the church, but the church will be gone. The church is taken out of this world before the tribulation begins. So there is no church in the millennium. In the golden age, there is a different worship. The object is still the same, but the worship is different because there is a temple. And so worship will revert to the temple style. What do we know about millennial worship? Well, the answer is found in the book of Ezekiel. It has more to say about this worship than any other prophecy in the Bible. Ezekiel's descriptions are too precise for us to take figuratively. So if you'll turn to Ezekiel 45, we're going to read a little bit about worship in the millennial kingdom. Now, in the previous chapters leading up to this, Ezekiel wrote in detail about the millennial temple. And chapter 45 reads very much like Exodus and Leviticus in rules for worship in the tabernacle and temple. And so in Ezekiel 45, starting at verse number 13, the prophet says, this is the oblation that ye shall offer. Now maybe you don't understand oblation. Oblation simply means the gift of the offering. This is the oblation, the gift of the offering that ye shall offer. The sixth part of an ephah of an omer of wheat, and ye shall give the sixth part of an ephah of an omer of barley, Concerning the ordinance of oil, the bath of oil, ye shall offer the tenth part of a bath out of the core, which is an homer of ten baths, for ten baths are a homer. And one lamb out of the flock, out of two hundred, out of the fat pastures of Israel, for a meat offering and for a burnt offering and for peace offerings, to make reconciliation for them, saith the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince in Israel. Now how many of you would say that is very confusing? How many of you know right now, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing in the millennium. I know exactly what worship is like in the millennium. I dare say you probably don't. But there are many of you that because you have come to previous Sunday afternoon sermons for many, many months on the tabernacle, you recognize some of the things that you see here. You see meal offerings, you see a burnt offering, and there's a peace offering. Those are very clearly Old Testament offerings. So there are new offerings that will be made to honor Christ. Now, I also want you to see, it talks about the prince in the passage, and I want you to understand that it's not talking about Christ, but rather it's speaking of the administrator of these offerings. Now, while you still have it open, go down to verse number 21. In the first month, in the 14th day of the month, ye shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. And seven days of the feast he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord. Seven bullocks and seven rams without blemish daily the seven days. And a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a meat offering of an ephah for a bullock. And an ephah for a ram and a hen of oil for an ephah. In the seventh month, in the fifteenth day of the month, shall he do the like in the feast of the seven days, according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, and according to the meat offering, and according to the oil. Now, all of that may thoroughly confuse you, but what you have there is the reinstitution of offerings, including the Passover. Do you remember in Exodus where it says on the fourteenth day of the month, and there we find the same thing here concerning the Passover. And the burning question about all of this is why? Why is it this way? 
All those Old Testament sacrifices, what did they do? They pointed to Christ who was yet to come. But now Christ has come. The antitype of those offerings has come. Christ fulfilled all of them. So why are they going back to sacrifices? How do you explain that? And I'll tell you, I explain that with very great difficulty. It's very difficult. What is the purpose? And I can only say that these sacrifices are a memorial. Just like the Lord's Supper is a memorial for the church today. The Lord's Supper never saved anybody. Anybody doesn't save us. And these sacrifices won't save. They are only a memorial. So these are memorials that look back to the cross. What Christ did. And they're vivid pictures of what Christ did. Now here in the church age. This could never be permitted. You can't do this now. But in the kingdom. This is God's way of memorializing. Especially to the Jews. What happened at the cross. And so in the millennium, the temple is brought back. I have no other way of explaining it. I can't spiritualize it because it appears to be literal. And people will go up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. Representatives from all over the world will go to Jerusalem to worship. The temple mount might even be the highest point on earth in the millennial kingdom. Micah chapter 4 says... But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now do you see that? The house of the Lord, that is the temple will be established in the top of the mountains it's exalted above the hills and so for miles around it's the grand focal point now as I close today I'd like you to turn to another scripture Zechariah chapter 14 the millennial kingdom ends at 1,000 years and the kingdom will go out in another act of fear as God rains down fire from heaven Upon Satan, after he is released from the abyss, and upon his demons, and upon those who follow him. You see, during the millennium, worship is enforced. And at the end of 1,000 years, the world is populated by lost people who hate the king. Lost people are never going to love the king. They hate the goodness of the kingdom. They've been forced all of this time to worship him, when in their hearts there wasn't anything but hate. And so the hostility mounts against the king. Zechariah 14, verse 16, It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king. Now that's referring back to all the ones that were left. Those are the ones that were at the battle of Armageddon that did survive and they went into the kingdom. Now we're at the end of the kingdom and the Lord of hosts commands them, it says, to keep the feast of the tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to, the fe to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now remember, these are people that see the righteous king, have lived in a righteous government, but they refuse to come up to worship. In that day shall there be bells upon the, 
uh, there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. So God says, if people refuse to come and worship, then God will stop the rain. God will stop the prosperity in the kingdom. If they still refuse to come, then he sends a plague. And so the hostility grows, it mounts, until people can stand it no longer. And at that moment, in their great anger, Satan is then turned loose. The chains in which he has been imprisoned, are, are, those shackles are removed. And then Satan seizes upon the anger of the people to make them think that it's possible to overthrow the righteous king. So what do they do? The ending is in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. That is a remarkable thing. The number of people standing against Christ after the righteous kingdom is as the sand of the sea. That simply means a number that's so great you can't stand there and count them all. All of these people that lived in the righteous kingdom, they now turn against the king. And they went up upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and forever. Folks, you are looking at there at the realization of the total inability, the total depravity of man to come to Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit speaking to his heart. That is why these people are lost and why they won't come to Christ. That's the end of the millennium. And it ends just as it began with devastation and destruction. It began a thousand years before with the battle of Armageddon. When God destroyed people, the enemies of Satan at Armageddon. And it ends with another beatdown of Satan and all of his followers. But the scripture says before they ever have a chance to fight, before there is ever one bit of bloodshed on the part of God's people, which there could never be, God destroys them with fire. And that ends the kingdom. And at that point, the final day of judgment is set. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And that comes up next in our discussion of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The wicked are brought to their final judgment that will end in eternity. So the wrath that the Bible speaks of is not just tribulation that comes upon the earth. It is also the final judgment upon all who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Every lost person will stand at God's final tribunal... In verse number 3 of our text, Paul said, They shall not escape. Will you escape? That depends on what you believe. Is the king your king? Is your hope in the Christ of the Bible? Or is your hope in a religious system that's not his? He rules. By his rules, he rules. And your religion must be his or you will not escape. Folks, write it down. Make sure you know this. Not everybody is right. Not everybody is right. You must believe the truth in order to be saved. So what do you believe? Examine that now. Do you know Christ? Do you worship Him? Or do you worship some idea of Christ? Do you worship your opinions of Christ? Do you worship your judgments? Do you worship your justice? Or is it the divine Christ as He's revealed 
in the Bible. You've got to have it right. Because one day you're going to give an account to the righteous judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now confessing again our sins. Knowing this, Lord, that we need you. Every hour, we need you. By your grace and by your mercy is the only reason that we survive in this wicked world. As your people, it's the only, only way that we can make it through the, the terrible times in which we live. Lord, we thank you that there is a kingdom coming where we will reign with you. And now, Lord, I pray for those who might be here today who haven't trusted you as Savior. They, they don't know you or they have some false idea of who you are. We pray they will see the truth of Scripture. You are the righteous judge. You are the only way that anyone can be saved. By faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, is the only way that we can come to salvation in Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.